Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery with me, Jody Stevens. We're here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions and other addiction-related mental health challenges. In this show, we dive into the physical, emotional, psychological, medical, and spiritual aspects of addiction, mental health, recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. Welcome back to Genuine Life Recovery. My name's Jody Stevens. Thanks for hanging out. Again, please share this show with anybody you know struggling with addiction and other mental health challenges or folks in recovery that would like to listen. You can share it on social media. I'd love that. And listen on your favorite apps, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon. Also by clicking podcast at jodystevens.org, J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S, jodystevens.org. Welcome back to part two with my friend, Conard Hogan. Conard is retired, but he was a practicing therapist and he worked for years in addiction counseling. He's author of the book, Once Upon a Kentucky Farm, Hope and Healing from Family Abuse, Alcoholism and Dysfunction. He is a trauma survivor, Vietnam veteran, and adult child of an alcoholic. So in the last episode, Conard explained what ACA is. That stands for Adult Child of an Alcoholic. We talked about some of the issues and challenges faced by individuals who grew up in alcoholic homes. We talked about the various faces of trauma and how it can be emotional as well as physical, how trauma can break our ability to form healthy connections and relationships and lead to maladaptive choices, how self-esteem and trauma are related, learned helplessness that trauma can cause, and tons more. So please check out the first episode with Connor Hogan, if you haven't listened to that one yet. So Connor, we left off with you leaving home, kind of leaving the that soup bowl, as you put it, with your traumatized father, who was also a war veteran, an alcoholic, and pretty abusive. And you ended up in, you know, leaving that environment and going into Vietnam. Tell me just a little of your story as it relates to an adult child of an alcoholic. What are some situations that might happen, some of the family dynamics and just things like that 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 you experienced that caused you to manifest or you know have trauma and stuff later in life? I don't know how I don't know how many instances I can refer to, but I can say generally and one in particular when I recall very vividly, that's in my memoir, my dad came home inebriated. My mother began to confront him verbally, you know, you're drinking again. You got to stop doing mm-hmm. that. We need the money. She wasn't working. He was our breadwinner of the family. And he just, you know, the, the argument over, I don't know how long, minutes or, you know, 10 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever, finally got to the point where I could hear slapping in the kitchen. I was in the living room watching television, trying to be the meek mouse and and shrink Mm -hmm. and not get in the way of this two elephants, so to speak, uh, rumbling at each other. And then at one point, my mother left the kitchen, went into the bedroom. My dad followed her in there. And then suddenly he's dragging her by the hair across the living room floor. Mm -hmm. Uh, At some point, I think it was that same episode, my mother grabbed my brother and me by the hand and said, let's go. We left the house. I don't know if dad must have been in the kitchen at that moment. We left the house and went two doors down where at the time my father's parents, my grandparents lived and mom knocked on the door and my grandparents, I think were probably both still working at the time. They were not there, but my youngest aunt, my uh, father's youngest 
sister came to the door and opened the door for us. We went in and uh, they had a screen door and a regular door. So the screen door was shut and locked, which <laughs> isn't much. And we stood there. Dad was right behind us within 30 seconds, came up to the door and with one yank, the screen door is open and he's in mom's face and I'm standing right behind him. And my aunt is freaked out saying, what's wrong with you? And, and so that went, I was afraid he was going to, you know, get physical with them. And then the police came, somebody called the police because of the, you know, domestic dispute, quote unquote. And they calmed him down after about 10 minutes, but then they left and that was it. They didn't do anything else. And then, so it was like having that intense rage and not knowing how he was going to behave, if he was going to lash out and in what way and in, and in um, how severe it was going to be or how long it would last. I grew up afraid that in some form or fashion, whether at the moment it was a, uh, an instantaneous decision that he may actually uh, kill my mother and I might lose her. So I always had that fear of that, uh, uh, losing that bond I had with my mother because she was it as a kid, you're pr usually, um, unless you're with in a foster situation or the mother is gone is usually the primary emotional support person. And so mm -hmm. I was deathly afraid I was going to lose that. And if um, those that have experienced, you know, trauma and stuff like that, the, you know, what you're describing is very common in an alcoholic family or mm -hmm. a family where communication is dysfunctional. I can remember waking up to screaming and shouting and stuff breaking. And mm -hmm. then I would say what happened and I would be told nothing. We were just having a discussion. And I'm five. <laughs> so I'm thinking, well, you know, and the house is torn up, right? <laughs> Things are broken and crashing. And so I'm thinking, well, this doesn't seem like a discussion, right? <laughs> and so, so I think then what happens is, right, you probably had a certain amount of just fear and anxiety as you grew up, not really trusting oh, yes. your instincts because, right? I mean, and then later, maybe probably nobody ever talked about what happened, right? There was no processing. And so oftentimes you grow up and you... You know, most of us trust that our world is kind of safe, but when there's trauma, you don't really believe your world is safe. And I think mm -hmm. that's a key where that's kind of where a lot of this, these maladaptive coping skills come from is we're trying to protect ourselves from an unsafe world that right. we don't and it, think and it's is unpredictable. safe, you know? Unpredictable, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the background you don't know that we happen. grow up with and, and, and it's always there. And I don't know for a trauma victim that somebody's an adult child of an alcoholic, if that ever totally goes away though we can yeah. learn how to deal with it and, and minimize its negativity on us and, and be able to talk about it when it does get intense for us. But I, I, and, and having said that, I don't know that that's necessarily a negative thing. I mean, it can, if we're yeah. not continuing to victimize ourselves over it uh, and not being continuing to allow ourselves to be victimized by other people, then, then we can turn that into a plus or a positive and, and grow stronger over that. But exactly. it's not about the forgetting. It's about the remembering Mm -hmm. Well, and you as someone who overcame this and then became a therapist, I mean, mm -hmm. that's very powerful because you can relate to all that, mm -hmm. you know. And it sounds like you went, so you went from one trauma to another. So you left the traumatic childhood and then went straight into Vietnam? Well, yeah, <laughs> Sorry, pretty, not much, funny, but you pretty know much closely. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't out of the home. Uh, I was in college for a year and a half and I dropped out mm -hmm. because of grades. And then within another year, I was drafted 
into the army. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I hadn't gotten out of the stew, so to speak, of the dynamics of my parents and, over the alcohol and the fighting and the arguing and all that. Although the physical abuse had kind of died down as far as I know, when I was about that age, the, the, ver- the arguing still occurred, the, the verbal abuse was still there. I didn't get out of that soup bowl or out of that stew before I was already in the army and confronted with basic training and the, you know, the regimented kind of uh, orientation that the army uh, wanted to instill in people uh, vis-a-vis authority and the way they went about it. I, it was immediate that, you know, it's like, Ooh, I hate this. I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it began to generate more anger for me. Uh, and of course you couldn't go to the drill sergeant and say that hurt my feelings. <laughs> right. And you, and you didn't have a counselor you could go to on the base and say, you know, eh, my f- drill instructor's abusing me. <laughs> it was almost that you're reliving the same environment that you left in a way. Yeah. Of. In a way, like different faces, different time, of course, uh, there wasn't alcohol from the drill instructors, but you know, it was still abusive yeah. in its own way. I understand the, the rationale and the need for it from the army stand, the military standpoint, but nevertheless, yeah. it was still traumatic in a way. And then being in Vietnam, just being there. Yeah. In my mind, having grown up as a, and an ACA, I was constantly in the, background of my mind, and it may have been true for other people that didn't grow up as an ACA, I was constantly on alert that I could get my butt shot off at any moment. Not that I was in a combat situation. I was in a non-combat support role as an intelligence analyst at two core headquarters in the train. And that's probably one of the safest places you could be. Mm-hmm. But I still had that fear of dying in Vietnam. Um, well, so and it, a lot it, of people it, did, so it's, it's understandable, yeah. you know, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Anytime you're in, in a enemy territory or anywhere near, you are at risk for being bombed and or mm-hmm. shot or invaded or, I mean, it's a real, it's, it was a very real fear. I don't think yeah. that there was a, and, and I think some people who did not have that fear, probably they either didn't grow up in the, that kind of situation, or maybe it was, wasn't that intense for them. They could kind of overlook it or deny it. Mm-hmm. But it is a yeah. real, I mean, it's a real possibility. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know how other people might have not felt that, but I certainly did feel it. Or they did, they, you just didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at worst, because it's, it's not like Vietnam veterans had any support when they got back, you know. So no, you and that was a further victimization or a traumatizing yeah. kind of situation yeah. too. It's like not having, not getting the empathy and or having an immediate way to talk about it with anybody. It's like feeling isolated and cut off mm-hmm. in that yeah. experience. Uh, well, uh, the whole thing was just so, so wrong on so many levels. And they say that mm-hmm. a lot of these crazy coping mechanisms that we've developed, these this codependent living style of don't talk, don't feel, are learned mm-hmm. through generations of war and pesticide and disease and things like mm-hmm. that, where y- if you're going to survive, you got to shut down, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a result of, of just, and, and then if, then when you're out of the trauma shutting down, then the feelings come up and then we start the drinking or the using or the other maladaptive behaviors. And it, mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. how it just goes from generation to generation, you know. Right. And I think you have a good point. And I have heard, and I tend to believe it, that the 
citizens of the United States. The United States has been at war, not constantly, but often enough that I think probably just about every generation has had some faced some trauma of warfare. And we haven't been a society. We certainly aren't a government currently offering therapy and counseling to people. We've not been a society that's been open to dealing with trauma. So I think a lot of us carry a lot of the effects of that trauma that's carried through our generations. Uh, and that's what I was alluding to when I said I thought my grandfather was abusive and, and probably alcoholic. And uh, it, it, some of that was passed to my dad and then some of that was passed to me. But who knows about my grandfather? He may have grown up in an alcoholic family as himself. Uh, I think I, I think probably somehow, I'm sure somehow, he had some poor role modeling and or was in traumatic situations uh, to turn out to become. And it's not that I believe that alcoholism is purely social or affected by social the social environment. Some of it can be physiological, but certainly, and I don't want to, you know, get into that debate because I don't know if it's resolvable. However, I think that the social component, the environmental impact on people has a lot to do with uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, or any other kind of addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, And how did this type of environment and trauma impact your relationship issues, A, and B, how did you go about working through that and kind of correcting it? Because I'd love to get into a little bit more of the healing piece of it, because you definitely are more than a survivor. Like, you didn't just survive, you came through, then you became a therapist, now you're helping other people, writing books. I mean, that's cool. That's like, Mm -hmm. that's a victory right there. So I so but going back, like I was just kind of asking, you probably at some point realized, you know, a lot of this, this is what happened to me. Coping skills are wrong. I'm having relational issues. How did all that kind of gel out for you and lead okay. you towards, you know, going and getting your therapeutic license and stuff? Okay. Well, I I kind of had to chuckle to myself when you were mentioning about my relationships. I didn't do so well <laughs> in that department, but I'll elaborate in a moment. Yeah. Um, it may have been, I, I had gone into, I come out of high school with the idea of becoming an astronaut and, and getting a de- uh, degree in aeronautics. And so without belaboring that point, I, dro- I my grades weren't good. I dropped out, ended up in the army and in, in Vietnam. And at some point, attempting to reassess my life goals, I decided I wanted to do something in social work. I saw the poverty there. And I don't know all of the reasons, and I don't think any of us can ever pinpoint all of our reasons and motivations for doing something. I think it's multifaceted, complex, and and, and kind of, in a sense, evolving over time, yeah. that I decided I wanted to try to do something to help other people. Mm-hmm. And vis-a-vis social work, but when I got back and, and finished up my, um, when I went back to school after my service, um, I got a, a bachelor's degree in sociology. They didn't offer a, a major uh, in, in social work, but I got a minor in social work. Then I came to California with the idea of getting a master's in social work. However, that morphed again, and then I uh, got a master's in marriage and family therapy. All of that in the background motivated by my desire to, quote unquote, help other people. And I think part of that kind of grew out of my, as I grew up, and I've mentioned it, 
being deathly afraid of my mother being killed or dying was I wanted to help. So I think that was an extension of that experience that I had of wanting to help. Also, ending up being a therapist, it was like you're mediating in family therapy or situational therapy or group settings. You're mediating in, in many situations. So I grew up trying to figure out how to mediate between my mother and my father. Mm, yeah, yeah. So those two things, I think, kind of propelled me towards becoming a therapist. And then after I once a full-time job, the first full-time job I had was with an agency doing drug and alcohol. And and when I interviewed for that, I was thinking in the back of my mind, well, I know about this stuff. I grew up around it. So it's not unfamiliar to me. So I can probably, yeah. you know, it won't be that difficult to be able to do this. In that particular position in that agency, uh, well, I, my job was as a counselor in a uh, adult residential treatment program our major focus of therapy there was the Gestalt method or Gestalt model from Fritz Perls. Mm-hmm. Don't want to get too deep into technicalities. And in Lots conjunction with 12 step <laughs> programs. Uh-huh. So the Gestalt is about reflecting back to people and helping, helping them try to identify their feelings, but not projecting the therapist's ideas and questions on the client. Yeah. So kind of going where the client takes you, so to speak. So with those two things, a gestalt therapy or just the therapy component and the 12-step component, I began to expand and learn new tools myself, applying it to my own life, and then looking at that in relationship to my past. One of the things that we did do was a group meeting every week with the employees, which we called self-assessment where we could actually use and practice the same tools, but to communicate with one another and look deeper within ourselves so that we could begin to express whatever issues we had or was bothering us. And so being able to uh, then get support for dealing with the pain that I was experiencing, no matter where it was, with the anger Mm -hmm. I was experiencing, no matter where it was coming from or my anxiety or whatever, wherever that was coming from or however it was getting triggered, allowed me then to begin to free myself up emotionally. So that, I think, was a big piece in my recovery process. Having learned about 12-step meetings, I would go, I would take clients to meetings and sit in the meetings and hearing hearing about people's issues about the 12 steps, working the 12 steps, the struggles they were having about it, uh, then began to help me kind of coalesce uh, uh, for myself. Like, where am I in this whole mix about my growing up as a child of an alcoholic. Uh, I did go to some ACA meetings and I would have to tell you at that juncture for me after being a therapist that the clients attending those meetings were really in intense pain. Uh, That they had, uh, it was like a a well, a deep well of intense pain and it would just, it's it's almost as if some of them were gushing the pain uh, at a moment's notice. Um, I was very impressed. I do want to say I would acknowledge their courage to do that because I think it's difficult, obviously, for an ACA. But at the same time, it's like um, for anybody that's never been around it, that is just that could be so overwhelming, the intensity and the depth of the pain that people mm-hmm. have experienced. And, uh, and, and in the long run to recover, they just need to get it out. They can't yeah. carry it around. Yeah, I think there's so much 
in working through trauma, working through abuse. Like, you know, they always say the only way out is through. And I think that's really yeah. true. And then yeah. I think what I love about the 12 steps is, and I found this in my own life, that one of the biggest keys is the acceptance piece. Uh-huh. You know, that that was very life changing because, you know, we're, we're trying to change a lot of things that we can't. And so if mm-hmm. you can come to a place of acceptance of this is kind of the way it is right now. Mm-hmm. Then it's a lot easier to move forward and gain, gr- glean the tools. Did you find yeah. that to be true? Oh, yeah. It's important to begin to understand or grapple with, and at least from moment to moment, ask yourself, do I, have, do I really have control over this? Yeah. <laughs> and if I don't, what am I going to do here? I, I need to let right. it go is the healthy answer, but that, that's not always the, uh, you know, that, that's not a uh, every, it's fit all kind of answer to every situation, but uh we can't stew over things we we don't have control over. That's not healthy for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Well, what are some tools you would you know recommend for people that like if you're listening and you're thinking, "Gosh, I relate." Oh my goodness, that was my childhood. You know, what are mm-hmm. some best sort of ways to not only help ourselves initially, but maybe those that we love that may be struggling with mental health disorder or an addiction or something like that. Okay, uh, just off the top, there are a few things that I can kind of think. Um, one, I think journaling or writing down our dreams is important. Mm-hmm. Keeping those, if if we can keep those safe and people aren't going to impinge on it and, and uh, invade our privacy over them. Um, I think perhaps uh, looking into 12-step meetings any, in any form or fashion, but if you certainly grew up around someone you thought was an alcoholic or drug addict, consider finding out about adult children of alcoholics anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, those are very helpful. And, and considering um, counseling or therapy, of course, that's usually not free. There's a cost to it. But yeah. if that's uh, something that's within your resources, uh, considering uh, therapy for drug and alcohol use yourself or just having grown up around it, you can learn about you, how you you have grown, well, how you have adopted uh, inappropriate behaviors and you can talk about your feelings and I think that's very important. If nothing else, finding somebody, an adult you can trust who has their head on straight and that's kind of hard to know who it is, but, <laughs> but somebody who's mature, who can, um, who you can confide in, who won't uh, try to fix it for you necessarily, but accept uh, your, validate you, accept what you're feeling and experiencing and help you navigate it without trying to uh, predetermine where you should or shouldn't go or what to do. Um, Not that they won't have advice for you, but to give you your choice in it. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a big one too. Help help us to develop sort of that um what do they you know they call it like self-efficacy but basically that piece of just empowerment that hey Mm -hmm. i can i can make choices here i can choose how i deal with this i can choose what i want to do with my life i can choose how i'm treated that can Mm -hmm. be so super empowering and just really start the the recovery process you know just and having someone safe to talk to that doesn't like judge us you know Mm -hmm. that's a huge piece too to help eliminate a lot of the shame issues because a lot of times there's a lot of shame that comes from abuse that's not even really ours to carry but we just have it you know right right there's some sense that i must have caused it what did i do wrong what's wrong with me yeah right right because when you're a a kid 
Oh, I was going to say when you're a kid, you that's what you do. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh, my parents are fighting. I must have done something wrong. What's wrong? I must have done or something wrong. Or maybe it's because you... I'm alive. I was born. Oh, I mean, that's the yeah. worst part of it, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, or adults could end up getting being suicidal about the, over that and make it a choice. Mm-hmm. A bad choice to, to, you know, I'm going to, I'll just leave. I'll be out of the picture. And so that'll fix it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not worthy anyway, so you know nobody's going to miss me. But you made a good point. It's a process. It's not an event, and it takes a long time. And it can be a step forward and a step backwards, or two step forwards and two step backwards. There's no exactly. You know, it, it's a learning process. And if you experienced as an ACA the various events, traumas over time, don't expect that you're going to overcome that immediately. It may take you as long. It's not necessarily healthy to expect that you're going to be able to immediately overcome all of that, that it's not a bad thing that it'll take time or for the rest of your life. And like I said yeah. earlier, it's all about the remembering, not the forgetting. So, you know, embrace it and be, and turn that, turn your past experience into a plus um, by learning to, learning better coping mechanisms or better, rather than cope, healthy mechanisms. Right. Um, and I, I love the, uh, you know, the Victor Frankl's The Man's Search for Meaning, you know, where he, you know, oh, yeah. basically he was in a concentration camp and those mm-hmm. that survived found meaning and they found, you know, they found meaning in their life and what they wanted to do, you know, after that. Because if you, yeah. you know, if you come from, like, if you're an alcoholic and you try to quit drinking and you don't find purpose and meaning in the life outside of the addiction, you you might relapse because you're like, well, what's the point? I don't like my life without the addiction. So that's why that, you know, developing meaning is so important. And then learning from the relapse, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot to learn. I always call mine now, I've been sober 17 years, but I call them behavioral relapses where I still have yeah. it, where it's like, I just don't, I still don't always cope very well, you know, with things mm-hmm. and I and I fly off the handle and have to go back and apologize and you know all this stuff and you know those are just learning experiences. I right. used to just beat myself up life's over. Now it's like no yeah. You know, we just have to learn through whether it's it's an addiction relapse, an anger relapse, a food relapse. A, mm-hmm. Those are normal. It's normal. But a lot of times we get that and there's a therapeutic name for it where you're just like, that's it. You know, I had a piece of cake. I'm going to eat the whole cake. Right. I took a drink. <laughs> I'm going to drink the whole bottle. You know, right. where we don't have to do that. You know, we can yeah. we can learn from what happened. Uh, yep. And then move on from there. But in that we, kind of all or nothing abusive environment we were grew up with, we don't really understand that. And so that's why it's good to have like a good counselor or somebody that can be like, no, it's OK. Yeah, this this yeah. is normal. You know. Yeah. We try to get away from that all or nothing mentality uh, mm-hmm. and do the best we can and continue to do the best we can when we're aware that we're out of bounds or have gone off on the tangent, fallen off the rail or cliff. Then we pick ourselves <laughs> yeah. up. Uh, yeah. and say, okay, what can I learn from this and how can I do better and not repeat it? There was a beautiful poem. I can't think of the name of it now. It's about walking down the street and over time, fall into a hole. I don't know how I got here. It takes forever to get out. Walk down oh, the yeah. same street, mm-hmm. fell into the hole. I can see I'm in a hole. I don't know how to get out, but I did. Walk down the street, uh, fell into the hole. Now I know how to get out and I got out faster. Walk down the street. I see the hole, but I still fall in it. Uh, I walk down the same street. I walk down the street. Uh, try to 
avoid the hole, fall in it, get out immediately. And then the next line is, I walk down a different street. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, oh, I had to belabor God. that, but that, that's, a be- that's a beautiful description. Well, and it's funny, though, because I, for years, because I had no boundaries, I had road rage because that was how I dealt with not standing up for myself. I would just yell at people I didn't know on the road, yeah. which is, yeah. I think, quite common, right? If you can't talk to oh, your yeah. boss, you go home and you, you know, play it, the breaks game. And, in and a I sense, remember it's when... more anonymous and we don't need to <laughs> is, listen to the response is. most of the time. And, and it was years later I learned it was actually a, a, a biblical thing. And I, God literally told me boundaries. I was literally chopping carrots and I said I'm gonna die out there like what's going on and I heard mm-hmm. the word boundaries and I was like oh my gosh but I remember <laughs> I remember getting a, a a ticket one of the many tickets that I'd gotten when I was dealing with all that anger and, and mm. I went to my husband and I said I, I don't know what to do I said I, I, I'm gonna die out there I'm gonna die out there mm-hmm. and he looked at me and he goes he goes well, why don't you just move over and I went what he said, yeah, why don't, why don't you just move over? And I thought, oh, wait a minute. I could, That's possible. instead of getting into this huge argument, this was that thing about not having power. Instead of getting into this huge road rate in- incident, I could just move into the slow lane. Like it just never, it was just, it was so funny, but it, it was so poignant because it was just one of those things where it was like, wait a minute here. I have control over this. Mm-hmm. And then I began looking at the dreams like you were talking about, and I could see where I was in my emotional state with emotions through um, the dreams. And then I started standing up for myself, little things like going and talking to the boss. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, the dreams of running around feeling trapped, the, the, the feelings of trapped went away. And pretty soon, I started dealing with all the road rage issues. Though That anger started to subside because I was being assertive in the areas yeah. that I felt powerless to be assertive over. But it yeah. took years and years. Um, and that's why I want to do help people circumvent this, like make it go a little quicker because I didn't get therapy. I le- Now I'm learning, oh, I was using all these, you know, therapeutic techniques. I didn't even know I was learning. I just sort of self-healed, but it took way mm-hmm. longer, I think, than it should have. You know? Right. It takes longer <laughs> if you're by yourself because you don't see your own pitfalls. Yeah. Falling yeah. into that same hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you exactly. learn more about it each time, but eventually you might decide, <laughs> I'll go down a different street. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, I've talked to you forever. It's been so great. I could I could keep chatting with you about a million things, but I want you to yeah. talk about your book and what you're doing okay. and your website and how people can connect with you. Once Upon a Kentucky Farm, colon, hope and healing from family abuse, alcoholism and dysfunction is my first published book, memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, there's information about it on my website, but it's available now in order from who knows how many websites but certainly amazon and barnes and noble and on and on it's about my experiences growing up as a adult child of an alcoholic it's not a self-help or a how-to mind you Mm -hmm. Um, people can read about it on my web uh, site i have a number of pages there but you can find my website by googling my name conrad hogan c-o-n-n-a-r-d-h-o-g-a-n dot com 
and you'll find information about me, my bio, uh, my blog, things I'm blogging about, including some of my world travel. Uh, I have one thread uh, that I'm that I've called "Wisdom of the Twelve Steps." Mm. Um, and then you can find uh, information or actually see some of my links in my videos of other blog, uh, I'm sorry, other podcasts or other presentations I've done about my book and writing. Um, and one of the ways that I'm working to increase my readership is uh, sending a quarterly newsletter, kind of a cap encapsulation or summary snippets mm -hmm. of things that I've done that past few months to people on an email list. And so people can sign up for my quarterly newsletter, which is free. And obviously you read it or you don't, or however you interpret it or whatever, it's up to you. Um, you can go to my website and sign up for, for that there. Well, I was very inspired by your story of just I'm, overcoming. I'm and thank you so much for coming on and just sharing your, as we say in recovery, experience, strength, and hope, and also expertise yes. and knowledge. <laughs> Well, I've enjoyed it, Jody. I appreciate the opportunity to join you, and perhaps we can do this again regarding some other things, such as my Vietnam memoir, when that's ready. <laughs> yeah, totally. We could talk about the 12 steps, lots yeah, of stuff. Yeah, we could do that. So we I, could get we yeah. could have a whole, whole thing about that. I mean, there's just so many things. Um, there is. There is. It's super good to have, you know, reoccurring guests and, you know, people that we can, that I can call on. So I'll definitely have you on my, on my list as well. So, okay, great, um, great. By the way, friends, please share this show if you're enjoying this with anybody you know struggling with addiction, mental health challenges, maybe child of an alcoholic, like with this episode. And you can share it on social media, and you can also listen on iTunes and Spotify and Amazon, your favorite listening apps, also on my website, again, by clicking podcast at jodystevens.org, J-O-D-I-E-S-T-E-V-E-N-S, jodystevens.org. So thank you so much, friends, for listening, and we will talk to you if, next time. If I, if I may, Jody, if I can sign off to your listeners and you with yeah. this a little anecdote, I came up with this phrase from a... Uh, a man who uh, supervised me for my internship to become a marriage and family therapist. I loved the man. I really I highly respected him. He used to say walk in beauty as a salutation and I've adopted that. He's now passed on but it comes from the American Indian phrase may you walk in beauty which mm. basically means walk in grace or be in peace and harmony with the world around you. So I'd just mm. like to leave your listeners and you with walk in beauty. I love it. Thank you. You're welcome.